The Tough Love and Second Chances podcast is written and produced by Tony Bennett on behalf of Edgar and reveals remarkable stories of those who refuse to be defined by their disability. The power of the human spirit shines through with examples of how hope, courage, and the opportunity to express oneself through the game of golf makes for a combination that can improve and even save lives. It probably is as bad as you think it is, but you're awake. These are the words of advice from Tony Poole when asked what he would say to someone who had just survived a stroke. Tony Poole shoots from the hip and takes no prisoners with his straight talking, as one might expect from an expat Kiwi living in the state of Texas, USA. The maxim of, if you're not on the edge, then you're taking up too much room, aligned with Tony's work ethic and outdoor fitness lifestyle. The story of Tony Poole demonstrates that we are not as bulletproof as we might care to think. Please enjoy my conversation with Tony Poole. And tell me, I mean, how did you come up to be in Texas? You're from New Zealand. You're a proud, you're a proud New Zealander. So yeah, um, how, how did you get out to to Texas? Well, um, I was. We, my wife and I uh, have, I guess, a history of somewhat, I'll say globetrotting, but that's probably uh, a disservice to true globetrotters. We left New Zealand in 1988, and uh, we went to the United Kingdom, ostensibly for two years, which became six. We returned to New Zealand in 1994, uh, started, had started our family in the UK, and then when our second child was, was on the way, we decided that this sort of nomadic lifestyle we had in the UK was not appropriate for a young family. So we returned to New Zealand. I, I went back to my software career in New Zealand. And in that process, I developed a certain skill or a expertise in a technology which happened to coincide with a startup that was, that had been created in California, they were aware of my my skill set, and then they recruited me to join them in California. So we came to, up to America for me to join the startup, and unfortunately, that startup went the same way as most startups did, which was down the toilet. So after a year, this this startup was struggling to survive, and uh, I saw the writing on the wall and basically sent my family home because I could live on tea and toast for weeks and I didn't want to subject the family to that. So I sent them home and then the startup, the only, the smartest thing these guys ever did was sell bodies, meaning they sold their staff. Yep. And so, so BMC out of Houston, Texas, I guess we're made aware of this, this international pool of talent that had been assembled by the startup in California. And uh, they were interested in the same technology. So they came up to California and interviewed a number of us and then offered about 20 of us a position with them in Houston. So I joined them in Austin, Texas, came down to Austin and we've been here for 20 years. Well, you obviously like it. Yeah, yeah, well, it's, it's okay. It's, um, <laughs> it's <warm>. okay. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's warm, um, you know, as, as is always the case in the United States, is, you know, a, a wealth of opportunity, and, and that was the case for me as well. 
So I continued my software career with them and have been with them for the last you know, 20 plus. So you got a, you, you've got a young family out there at the time when you first go out there. At the there. time, yeah. But yeah. Now, they're, now they're all you know, adults and they're, they're forging their own destiny and their own, their own path. Of course. So you, you're out there, young family, getting started. And yep. has golf got a place in your life at this stage? I had, um, I had joined the golf club in New Zealand because it was a it was the proverbial goat track. There's a story here too, Tony. I tell you, uh, this golf club. My my father was the, the the president of the golf club at some point in time. He also held various other positions in the golf club. And, and at that stage, we were a rugby family. You know, I had two older brothers, and we all played rugby. My father was a rugby coach as well as being the president of the golf club. And this golf club was a goat track. It was. It was, you know, I guess true golf in New Zealand at the time, you know, predominantly working class. Um, and so this golf, this golf course was a nine-hole layout, you know, twice, two laps around the track to get your 18. Not a single tree on this golf course because it was, it was like a wind tunnel. Okay. It was severely exposed. And our claim to fame is that that golf course was uh, where the 2005 U.S. Open champion learned his game, learned his skills. That was Michael Campbell. Michael Campbell, exactly. Yeah. yeah. He came from that same little, I guess I'll call it a coastal village that my wife and I came from. And what's the name of that village? Uh, Titahi Bay. So I joined, I joined that golf club really because, you know, I had some, uh, I guess, disposable income because I was doing quite well in software in New Zealand and I knew that club was struggling financially and I I joined that club just I wanted to uh you know I, I guess continue the legacy they were struggling for membership and finances so I I gave them get this I gave them 180 bucks and that gave me 18 months of seven day a week golf really yeah, because, it, I mean, seriously, at the time, they had electric fences around the greens to stop the sheep from, you know, grazing on the green and cacking all over the green. So you say you kind of did that to, to keep the legacy of golf there, but you obviously enjoyed the game at that stage. Oh, most definitely, yeah. And, you know, prior to my stroke, I was, I was your classic casual golfer. You might get out there once, you know, once or twice a year with the lads, a few beers and just knock it around and have a bit of fun but it was you know i was i was just your consummate general hack able body but you know kind of sort of uh jack of all master of none so you don't you, you you're in the the uk did you play golf in the uk i played I, I met some guys in ibm uk that were into it and so i went away with them on a couple of weekends and and uh Played with them, but again, just casual pickup sort of stuff. Nothing serious. Um, so just it was again just a, a casual, a casual outing sort of deal. And then you take your clubs out to Houston. So in Houston, I guess that everybody plays golf there. Is that right? Well, no, they don't, because in the United States, much to my annoyance, golf is very much a a game of you know, although there is no, there's theoretically is no class system here. Golf over here is 
the game of the elite or the uh, the uh, high income earners. That's why I, I draw the distinction between you know what I see here and most other parts of the world, and what I what I was observed in Titahi Bay, where, where it was it was clearly a, a working class game. You know, people that weren't interested in other summer sports, who were working class, they they play golf. So describe a, a typical day to me when you're in Houston. You know, you know, you know, as I say, you, you you're getting your feet under the table there. You're building your life there. What's a typical day in those first few years? Uh, I, I guess um, I was just focused on being successful over here and trying to provide for my family. So I was all about my career. So I'd, I'd bust my ass for, you know, the man, as they say over here, you know, the company yep. to try and do the best thing I could for them, which, you know, from my, my perspective, if I did well at, at the office, I'd do well from an income perspective, which in turn would do well for the family. And the family's all settled. They were they were very comfortable at that stage. Yeah, yeah. And uh, just for the record, I never actually went into Houston. It was quite an embarrassment, really, because um, the family were miserable. When I say California, we were in Los Angeles, and you know we come out of Titahi Bay, this little coastal beachside town in New Zealand, just outside of Wellington, and we dropped ourselves into Los Angeles. So it was, it was slightly it was, different. You know, yeah, mega culture shock for, you know, my wife and children who were like three and four at the time. Um, so we were miserable in Los Angeles. And when I, I, they flew me down to Houston for an interview and I, I went through this extensive interview process for BMC. And um, at the end of the day, I, I, I had to apologize to the head honcho that was sort of driving all of this and said, Hey, listen, I, I think I've wasted everyone's time and your money bringing me down here. I said, um, we're, we're miserable in LA. And to be quite honest, Houston is just another LA, another big mega American city. And you guys haven't even got a beach. So, you know, I don't <laughs> see the value in bringing my family from California down to here. Yeah, We're just going to be miserable in Texas instead of being miserable in California. And uh, to my surprise, instead of them sort of like, you know, showing me the door right there and then, they threw a bit of a curveball at me and said, well, we do have a R&D facility in Austin, Texas, and we could take you into that city. And I was like, wow. And, and to date, I hadn't done any extensive research on Austin at the time, but I had heard positive things about the place. So I came up here on that same trip, came across to Austin, and I was, you know, in Austin for probably four hours. And I put a phone call into New Zealand and said to my wife, "Pack your bags. I think we've found what we're looking for." So we, you know, they they returned to the United States, flew into Austin, Texas, and as I say, we've been here for twenty years. That's a fantastic story. That's that kind of uh... sort of is. It is, um, you know, just sort of fate, if you will. Yep. You know, just things just lined up. And, my, and I attribute some of that to my honesty. I could have just gone with the flow and, and gone into Houston where the majority of my 
former colleagues from California, they all went into Houston. And guess what? Out of all of those people, I'm the only one left in the company globally. Is that right? Yep. They've all they've all repatriated back to their places of, you know, their original homes or where they were citizens from initially. So tell me a little bit about your specialization then in software. Um, I am an R&D director. So I have a responsibility for a product line. And that responsibility means the development, enhancement and, and customer support of, you know, a, of about half a dozen products. And my technology, my speciality, well, my product portfolio would suggest that my speciality is database administration on mainframe database systems. Okay. It all sounds a bit geekish and it kind of sort of is, but to be honest, my forte was organization and technical leadership. So the smart guys were all the guys that reported into me and all I did was all I did was drive the bus and sort of make sure the bus was going in the right direction. The smart guys would do all the, all the clever bits and bytes stuff under the hood, under the covers. And all I did was make create the environment that they could be innovative and, and solve technical business problems for our customers. And so, and, and so today, as you, because I'm going to talk to you a little bit about your stroke, and yeah. and and when that happened, and anything sure. that anything that's come from that, yeah. Uh, but but today you're still occupied in that particular field. Correct. So tell me a little bit about your stroke. Okay, so um, that's a little interesting. I mean, I was, as I say, I, I was, I was. This is my own description i thought that i was kind of sort of bulletproof because the reason i say that i was i was kind of sort of living life on the edge i had this i had this expression if you're not on the edge you're taking up too much room and so what i mean by that is that i was i was involved in some sort of i'll say extreme sort of sports and by that i mean i'm not saying death defying anything like that I was doing half Ironman triathlons, which is pretty brutal on the body. Yep. You know, so, and I was I was I was doing endurance cycling events. You know, riding hundred mile bike rides and stuff like that. I was as fit as a fiddle, and uh, I was also a very accomplished snowboarder. In fact, I was a test team rider for a, a large apparel manufacturer here in the United States. I was I was riding a mountain in in Oregon, and some guy came up to me, introduced himself, and said he liked my style on the mountain, and would I consider being a test team rider for Vans? Okay. So I just said, well, what does that mean? What's my responsibilities in that role? So he outlined it, and I said, absolutely, sign me up. How old would you be at that stage? I would have been probably in my early forties. Okay. And so what a test team rider, what that meant was that it was a really cool opportunity. I would get next year's product and they would give it to me to then go out and ride. I would critique it and they would, theoretically, they would then feed that back into their R&D machine 
and incorporate my critique into the next, you know, the, the next stage of development for their product. Yep. Take that to market the following year, you know, with my suggestions incorporated into it. So every year I was getting new equipment, you know, free, and then be able to use that and provide a little bit of feedback to Vans, saying this is this needs to be looked into, this that or whatever whatever my critique might have been. So you mentioned that this was apparel, yes? Yeah, yeah. They were they. I don't know whether you heard of Vans. Yes, I have. Yes. Yeah, they make uh, skateboarding shoes. They also make um, snowboarding boots. Um, you know, and clothing, yep. jackets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I was getting primarily snowboard boots to wear, and so yeah, I was. I was also then, you know, with that sort of background and, and thirst for steeper and more gnarly sort of snowboarding. I, I then also, again, luckily enough to have the disposable income. I was doing things like uh, heliboarding trips, you know, like going into the back country in uh, in British Columbia, yep. Canada, and doing some uh, extreme snowboarding in there where, you know, I mean, it's not death-defying, but the risk of avalanche is reasonably high. But I used to organize these yearly snowboard trips to a, a special spot that we had in Utah that, you know, all the guys I used to ride with loved up there. So I'd take myself up, up, up there we have an absolute blast, which we always did every year. And uh, on the the night before the trip was over, well, I was we were supposed to, we were scheduled to fly out the next morning. I take myself off to bed. We've had a few drinks as we normally do in the evening after dinner. I take myself off to bed, and I'm 110. percent I'm feeling good, you know, everything's going well, and. Uh, I unfortunately that night, this was March 24, 2012. Not that I'm keeping dates, but I remember that that date significantly. On that night, I take myself off the bed. I have this ischemic stroke in my sleep. And then wake up the next morning. You know, I went to bed able-bodied. I wake up and I, I don't comprehend that there's a problem. So I roll out of bed to go to the bathroom. You know, my left side is effectively now dysfunctional because I had a right-sided ischemic stroke. And roll roll out of bed to go and have a piss and fall over. And again, because I've probably, you know, now in the early stages of a brain injury, I'm struggling to comprehend that that shit's gone down in my sleep. I'm unable to sort of interpret that and process it sufficiently. So I continue to try and get up, thinking my left side's fine. And I'm pulling furniture down and all sorts of chaos is occurring in my room. And uh, the guys that I'm traveling with, they're already out in the, uh, the lounge area thinking, what the hell's going on in there? You know, and why isn't Tony awake? Because he's normally the guy that gets up in the morning to make porridge. So this is very unusual for him not to be up and out and about. So they came into my room and what's been described to me is that I was on my back and sort of like gargling incoherently. And uh, I guess the self, the self-appointed medical expert amongst us, uh, he diagnosed, it, diagnosed me with altitude sickness. 
and said they, they should put me back to put me back in bed. The owner of the house we were staying in, fortunately, he'd had a TIA, which is a trans trans ischemic attack, which is a it's effectively a stroke, but it passes in seconds. That clot doesn't stay there like it did for me. He'd had one of these TIAs about five or six months earlier. He came into the room and he said, that's not altitude sickness. The dude's had a stroke. So they they then loaded me into the into the truck and took me down to the local mountain hospital where unfortunately with stroke, the first thing they're gonna ask is, when did the symptoms first, were they observed? When did the symptoms onset? Yep. And of course, in my case, the guys were like, well, hell, fuck did I know? You know, we went to bed around about 1 a.m. and he was just fine. 6.30 this morning, he's a mess. So somewhere in between 1 a.m. and 6.30 and the, and the, the, the guy, the, I guess the registrar, whatever, the, whatever his title was, he just kind of said, I, I don't recall. My Australian friend who'd come up from Australia for this trip, he said his recount to me was that the guy said, well, that's, that's the problem because if you can't identify the exact time of onset, we can't give him what's called TPA. And that is um, effectively human Drano. It's, the, it's a very effective drug. It's a, it's a clot buster. Okay. They, they administer that intravenously to effectively, you know, uh, break the clot up that's causing all the damage. Yep. Because they couldn't identify the time that it occurred, there's a very specific window by which they can administer that clot buster. And because we couldn't identify the time, he, I believe now quite rightfully, he declined to give me that medication because, you know, if, if you give it outside the window, it can be very dangerous. For example, there's two types of stroke, right? Uh, there's, there's hemorrhagic, which as the name suggests is a hemorrhage, and there's ischemic. And, you know, my, my uh, basic philosophy is always to try and simplify things. So I refer to those as wet and dry, right? A hemorrhagic stroke is wet. Yep. I mean, there's a bleed. A clot is dry because it's effectively behind that clot, you know, cells are dying because they're not getting any blood. Right. So that, therefore, that one's dry. And um, so the guy said, we can't, uh, we can't administer TPA. You know, it's a shame because it's just because invariably, if it's administered in time correctly, the chances of recovery are, are a whole lot higher. So for the first couple of few years after my stroke, I was all bitter and twisted and pissed off because I thought to myself, well, if he, if he had rolled the dice and given me TPA, I might have been, it had a totally different outcome. Yep. But, you know, I mean, you know, you can hindsight's twenty twenty, And, you know, America being such a litigious society, if he had rolled the dice and, it, and got it wrong, you know, most Americans would have sued his ass. Yep. So, you know, he, he acted appropriately. I now, over uh, with, with 
my own research and under, you know, understanding the situation that the poor guy was in, I understand why he made the decision he did. So you made a massive change in your mentality there between, I think the words that you used were bitter, bitter twisted and pissed off to yeah. being accepting of the circumstances that the registrar found himself in. Yeah, most definitely. And uh, so know, something that, changed there. Something changed with yeah, you. Yeah, that, that, that was. You're absolutely right. It's good to pick up on that because that was a sea change in my mentality. Not only did I understand the predicament that poor bugger was in, but I also came to accept that, you know, shit happens. And in this particular case, you know, I got the shit sandwich. And, uh, you know, pissing and moaning and being bitter and angry doesn't solve anything. It doesn't you know, make you less disabled, doesn't make your arm and leg work properly. All it does is makes you, makes you a miserable bastard to hang around with, you know, and doesn't, doesn't, doesn't advance the purpose or the, uh, the mission at all. But, you know, my wife probably, you know, because she obviously knew me better than anyone and, and knew the reaction I was having. You know, I was in the why me syndrome. You know, why me, man? I was a decent person before my stroke. You know, so much for a, 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 a god, blah, blah, blah. You know, so you just, you're pissing and moaning about everything that happens to you that, you know, that pissing and moaning doesn't solve it. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make it any better. Just takes you down a, a spiral that is the wrong place to go. Where do you think the change came? What what was there a, a moment? Was it just something that happened over a period of time? Was it gradual? Well, I think it was gradual. I I, I struggled with a little bit with depression, and my wife she picked up on it and said, you know, and of course, you know, being a New Zealander, you know, uh, you know, men are men, and you know, you, you know, emotional health for men in New Zealand is a real problem, still is today. Because you've got to be a hard Kiwi guy, you know. You, you don't let you don't let shit like that get on top of you. So it was difficult for me to comprehend that I was suffering depression. And my wife was the one that said, you know, there's medication for that, you know. And and taking medication is not a sign of weakness. It's basically addressing, acknowledging the problem, and taking medication to help you deal with it. So with her encouragement. I sort of agreed to, you know, uh, take some meds and that helped. And I also did some counseling and that helped as well. So the combination of her support, medication and some counseling, I think got me over the hump and allowed me to turn the corner. So tell me a little bit about the rehab, because what I hear oh, yeah, most okay. often there's, there's physically, obviously you've talked a little bit about the mental acceptance, right? but you've obviously got some physical rehab to deal with as well. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess it sounds kind of sort of contradictory, but at the end of the day, although I had a stroke and I was just, you know, like I said, bitter and twisted and angry, I actually now feel that you know, I'm lucky. I'm lucky for a variety of reasons. First of all, my stroke was massive. You know, those that know how to read a CT or an MRI, they've said to me, you know, Guy, uh, well, Tony, you, you were very lucky to wake up because most people that have what you had don't wake up. They die in their sleep. Right. 
So I was lucky there. And then kind of sort of rather perversely, I was lucky that I stroked in America to some degree because the rehab that I was exposed to was, I think was world-class, top, top drawer. You know, I had, I had therapists that cared, that took an interest in me and basically, you know, gave me the, the best of what they had. And so rehab was intense. It was six months long. Um, every day of the week, you'd have three or four hours of therapy, either physical, occupational or speech, but I never, I didn't, for some reason, they, they, uh, insurance wouldn't allow me to have speech therapy. I don't know why, but that's just, you know, the, the quirks of insurance in the United States, I guess. So I had this intensive therapy with, you know, and I was going through therapy with fellow stroke survivors, um, guys that had meningitis, guys that had traumatic brain injury from auto accidents, guys that had TBI from gunshot wounds. So, you know, you're in, you lump them with these guys that have all basically had the shit sandwich dealt to them. And you then, you then with that, this is part of that whole realization that, you know, it's not just bad luck, dude, it's, it's life. So these guys were, you know, invariably they were decent people um, and you know life dealt them a, a rough deal as well so you then start to then mix in rehab with these people and realize that you know it could be worse you i might not have survived that night yeah and i get to wake up every morning see the blue sky which invariably you do in texas see the uh the seasons and see my family so you know we've we've a newfound appreciation for life, I then, you know, that helped me turn the corner as well. And I guess part of that was the rehab experience because you see all these other poor, unfortunate bastards that have had to, um, you know, they also have had a life-changing event thrust being thrust upon them. So you, I was in this therapy for six months and then um, they have, you know, you're, you're all sort of focusing your energy towards what they call a graduation day. And they make a big deal out of it. And quite rightfully so, you know, it's, it's their way of sort of like saying that you've been working on this mission for six months or however long your recovery took. And there is a graduation day at which point in time you graduate from this rehab program, you go, you know, you then go back to society and start your your new normal life, which for me was, I was desperate to get back to my career because, you know, my, I felt a, a strong sense of allegiance and loyalty to my employer who had held my job open for me for all that time and then allowed me to go back in, into the same role that I had before I stroked which for them, you know, I don't know what the, the legal aspects of that were, but from my perspective, I was, you know, I still to this day feel deeply indebted to them because they, are, they you know, and this may be a uh, rather negative perspective, but, you know, I, in all honesty, I feel that they, they accepted and took on damaged goods, which was me. You know, I, I'd had a brain injury. 
and they were prepared to have me come back and step into the same role, which was which which had significant responsibility, you know. I mean, and they they rolled the dice and and took a bet on me, allowed me to come back, and so again back to that wanting to be successful and do the right thing for my family. I was absolutely petrified that I'd, I'd go back to my place of work and then discover that, you know, through a cognitive deficit or whatever it might be, I was no longer capable of, of performing my role as a, effectively a software development manager. And so although the, the return to work was supposed to be very sort of gradual and progressive, you know, as normally as always the case with me, people have said to me, you've got two, you've got two speeds on and off. And so uh, in true Tony fashion, I threw myself back into my job. You know, I was supposed to start like 20 hours a week and then bump it up to 24 and 30 and then 40. But, you know, typical of me, I just threw myself back in there and straight into 40 hour, 40 plus hour weeks to demonstrate that I still had the ability to perform my role satisfactorily. And um, I did it. How tough was that? Oh, it was very tough. It has been tough for since the day I started back. You know, everything, everything, everything you do post-stroke, you know, this is my sort of arbitrary assessment. Everything you do takes four times as long. You know, just, just putting your shirt on the morning to to building a project plan for a software development project. Everything takes four times as long as what it used to. Okay. So to, to perform the role at the same level that I did prior to stroking, I just had to crank out hours. And again, lucky, lucky Tony, I did not suffer one of the most, I think, prevalent post-stroke situations that most strokies have, and that's um, endurance or stamina. So I was able to, you know, quickly throw myself back into 50-hour weeks and you know, struggle, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't a physical and emotional mess. So I was able to crank out the hours, do the job, to my satisfaction and to the satisfaction of my employer uh, and demonstrate that I still had the ability to cut the mustard, do the business, as the Brits would say. So fast forward a couple of years, I get, I then get a promotion. I mean, shit, man. I've had a brain injury two years earlier. And I get a promotion from manager to director. You know, which again was a huge vote of confidence by my employer in my abilities. So that, you know, that was a, a huge boost of confidence for me because another thing post-stroke that you suffer from is an extreme lack of confidence because you think that everyone is staring at you and they're not. Everyone's busy with their own friggin' lives, you know? Yeah, yeah. But you have, this, you have this underlying concern that they're... they're they're watching you walk funky. They're watching your limp arm sort of droop by your side. And they're, they're waiting for slurs in your speech. And they're not. But you feel that they are. So you have this 
huge confidence gap. And, uh, you know, when I got my promotion, you know, I had a number of my, the people that I worked with that reported into me saying, hey, man, well-deserved, you know? It wasn't like uh, you sucked up to the boss or whatever. You worked damn hard for it and you, um, you deserve it. So... Tell me a little bit about those first few days when you're going to work. Um, you, you've, you've come through the graduation day. You're going back to work. Is there a sense of... Because this happened to you without you knowing. It, it, it seems like it happened to you without any warning signals, without any... Yeah, I had, I had no... Um, no pre-diagnosis, uh, no symptoms that would suggest I was on the path for stroking. My blood pressure was, you know, was uh, borderline hypertension. I was not pre-diabetic. I was not overweight. Um, everything about me suggested I was, you know, early 40s, in great shape, not an ounce of fat on the guy, in supreme fitness. So interestingly enough, when I finally got back from Utah to Texas, again, luck, seriously, Tony, throughout this, there's been a, a huge element of luck. I had the, the good fortune of meeting or having been placed under the care of a neurosurgeon who somewhat remarkably said to me when, he first, when we first met, he, um, he said to me, you don't fit the profile, you know, and for a long time afterwards, I thought to myself, well, that's it. That was a funny thing to say, because with stroke, unfortunately, there is no profile. You know, age is kind of sort of indiscriminate. And uh, I mean, there are some some telltale indicators, high blood pressure, smoking, um, diabetic, pre-diabetic, and I had none of those. And, and so he says we need to look at this a little little closer because what happened to you is not necessarily the right thing so he ran extensive tests on me and you know this was probably costing the insurance company an absolute fortune and we'd run so many tests that we were on our our final test to which he said after this we're going to basically abandon it. And we ran the last test, which we, test, which was a transesophageal echocardiograph. Basically, it's um, it's like an endoscopy where they, they drop it, yep. some sort of sensor down your esophagus and then take pictures from the outside, from the inside out, yep. looking out. Yep. And through that, it's called a TEE, and through that, that test, they finally found what they were looking for, which was a PFO, patent foramen ovale is the Latin for it, which basically means hole in your heart. Okay. So I'd had a congen con congenitive heart condition from birth that no one had ever picked up on at all because it was very, very tiny. And so I had this hole in my heart for, for 40 years and on that that rather you know uh, spooky night in Utah the perfect storm lined up and uh, the perfect storm has been explained to me as being at altitude dehydrated 
and just bad luck. In this case, bad luck. Where that hole allowed a clot to pass through the next pump of my heart that goes up into my brain and bang, she's all over. So this guy, as I said, was I was fortunate to meet him. He finds the hole. I then get scheduled for surgery and have the hole effectively uh, closed through a device that they insert into your heart these days uh, using cardiac catheterization. So again, stroke of luck, you know, good luck. This guy finds the problem. So now my chances of restroking are about as, are as good, but no better than someone else of my age and physical condition. You know, I'm now just, just back to Joe normal statistics because the hole's been closed. That indiscriminate nature, does that create any, because uh, you mentioned about confidence as well. Yeah. Do you, do you, or initially, did you find yourself thinking, well, if that's happened once, it can happen again? Oh, absolutely. I was absolutely, you know, living life shitting myself, wondering, is it going to happen again? So, yeah, then you have, I have my stroke, and you hear these stories, and you think, oh, my God, you know, is this, yeah. what's, what's the next thing that's going to happen to me? Yeah. So, yeah, you do. You, you live in this fear where, fortunately, this, this neurosurgeon, neurologist, got to root cause, addressed the problem, you know, and now, you know, touch wood, again, good luck. In the eight years since my stroke, I haven't had another one, which is, is statistically unusual. You know, once you've had one, you invariably, or certainly my experience in, in, in working with other strokies, is that, you know, normally for some of them, it's like, oh man, you know, I've had four or five. You know, in my case, I had one. It was a big one and, you know, uh, created some serious damage, but um, it was the only the one. And so now, you know, as, as we've discussed, I now just go, go forward, live with it, make the best of what you've got and demonstrate to others that are, in a similar situation that this doesn't mean that your life is now confined to the couch. You know, I have a rather uh, negative view. You know, it doesn't mean you have to sit and prop yourself up in the corner, dribble on yourself and watch TV for the rest of your life. Well, you're very active. I'm trying still. to. Then, yeah, I, I really am. I mean, um, golf has become, you know, from that pastime, that casual outing, it's become, you know, the center of my sporting passion because, you know, it's a, it's a fantastic game. I love it. I've always loved the, uh, the handicap system and different tee boxes where regardless of your ability, the game of golf had a, a mechanism in place to create a level playing field. You know, and even in disabled golf, as you now know, with the, the Stableford, division and then the, the gross and the net mm -hmm. there's a there's a category for us all where we can all participate you know some of us are lucky enough to be able to uh participate and be in be in the running for higher honors but invariably everyone can get out there swing the club and you know and, and enjoy the competitive spirit and the camaraderie of, of disabled golf 
I guess so that's, the nature, become, that's the nature of sport, though, isn't it? In, in the nature of sport, you're always going to have... It definitely is, yeah. That, and for all of us, I say for all of us, and I shouldn't try and speak for all of us, in my case, when I looked at the, uh, you know, the array of all those things that I was passionate about, snowboarding, triathlon, cycling, surfing, you know, all of those were now off the table for, you know, reasons of I can no longer do that, for reasons of my disability, or that it's too friggin' dangerous. You know, as a yeah. disabled surfer, I mean, that would just be stupid. Yeah. So, you know, the number of things were taken off the table, and then the one that was that remained on the table was golf. And I thought to myself, I think I can play the game one-handed. So you know, I then um, applied my my software engineering mindset and thought of reasons of of means that I could play the game more effectively as a one-armed golfer. So I tinkered with various bits and pieces and you know tried to solve the problem uh, using an analytical approach, which I might I'll, I'll add that. I got it wrong. I had a theory that was subsequently, uh, when, I, when I turned up at the US Disabled Open, the two guys I played my practice round with just blew my theory to bits. It was quite a interesting situation, I can tell you. Tell me about it. I had my son on the bag. It was my first ever competitive round of golf. The US Open, man, you know, so a pretty big step up and... Uh, so my theory was that I, I, I basically had my clubs all cut down. So my theory was that in order to maintain control of the club, the club head, a shorter distance between my grip and the club head would enable me to get the club back square, more consistent with having to deal with less length. That was my theory right so mm -hmm. to some degree it worked initially and so I, I was able to hit the ball fairly well consistently with these shorter clubs but what I didn't why well, I did realize but I didn't realize how significant the disadvantage was was I was giving up distance big time so I go to the US Open US Disabled Open with, with my son on the bag and we, as I say, we're, we're playing a practice round with two guys. One of these two guys went on to win his division in the 2019 US Disabled Open. And I'll tell you, man, this guy could play golf. And he played one arm too. And we get on the tee box of the first tee. And these two guys rip these two drives straight down the middle. And I'm telling you, it must have been 250 plus. And my son turns around to me and says, Dad, we've got a problem. <laughs> and I'm like, you betcha we have. My God. So, you know, for those, the practice round in the two rounds of competition, I found myself on the fairway 100 yards sometimes behind these guys on every tee box, you know. I'm hitting hitting my you know, three woods into par threes, I hitting short irons and and then I actually with my son on the final day of competition says to me, I know what the, the problem is 
And I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's just going to mess with your head. Let's just let's just finish this thing out and we'll, we'll, we'll address it afterwards, which was solid you know, guidance at the time because with the final round, I, was, I wasn't in contention, but I was there or thereabouts. So I didn't want other things going on in my head. And then when we finished, he said, he said, Dad, it's just basic physics. You know, you've, you're swinging a shorter club. Their club head speeds, God knows how much faster than yours. When they make contact, they're hitting the ball so much further. And they're doing it with every club in the bag because you've shortened every one of yours. And uh, sure enough, man, I came home and over a period of time, you know, restocked my bag with regular length shafts, blah, blah, blah oversized grips and uh, now I'm I'm progressing my game to the point where I'm now competitive as you know with other disabled golfers playing regular length equipment what a surprise tell me when you you played that event you said it was your first event first ever competitive round of golf so what was going, golf. what was going through your mind before that so not really from a uh, a player that's using one arm but just from a player that's playing in that event what was going through your mind were you excited about it apprehensive about it what what was your well, attitude going into it and then how did that change throughout the 3 days all of the above you know excited incredibly uh, you know, a lot of self-pride that I'd managed to I mean the first thing that uh, I guess struck me was that you know I you know when you think about I hadn't been involved with disabled golf prior to that at all ever you know so I, you you draw on the experience of able-bodied golf or professional golf and so the first thing I thought was the disabled US Open, hooray, you know, big deal. I won't qualify, I'm not good enough for that. And then when I contacted Jason Fairclough, somehow I, I can't even remember how I stumbled across the fact that there was a thing called the US Disabled Open. And then to my surprise and enjoyment, all I needed to do to qualify and be able to be officially entered into that event was I just had to have an official USGA sanctioned handicap and a willingness to participate and you know get myself to Richmond Virginia so the whole you know there was no qualifying as you know other than being disabled which I clearly was so I was incredibly proud of the fact that I was teeing it up and in, in, you know what I still see still believe to be a very prestigious event regardless of the fact that it's disabled US Open it doesn't matter so I was incredibly proud of it, but at the same time, equally apprehensive because I thought, you know, these guys are going to be really, really good. And I'm not really, really good. I'm just average. So, you know, I'm, I'm proud, incredibly nervous, you know, because I, you know, that, that confidence thing again, rears its ugly head. I'm not worthy to be here kind of sort of, sort of stuff going on between my ears. And then I teed it up with these guys, as I say in this practice round, it was like, you're damn right you don't deserve to be here. Look how far these guys are in the ball. Look how good they are. So I wrestled with demons for that day, big time. And then the tournament started the following day. And I realized that, 
you know, I still had game. And my scores were not as good as these guys, but I was not embarrassing myself. My son was, you know, he was excellent. By this stage, he's a young man, of course. And he's, he's you know, uh, talking to me, saying all the right things and, you know, just saying, don't get down on yourself, Dad. You know, you might have had a poor putt there, but there's plenty of other putts to be had in this round and there's another round tomorrow. You know, you're in this and, you know, you're doing okay. So he cajoled me along and, and kept me on the straight and narrow without taking me down the, the negative path too much. Yep. And uh, so, you know, round one goes through. And if I, if I recall correctly, I was actually on the, the first page of the leaderboard after the first round. And I didn't even know that. I mean, because I didn't even know where to go to find this information out. There was no leaderboard posted at the clubhouse or or anywhere I could find online. And it was only at, I think, the hotel that night that someone said to me, you know, yeah, I think you're on the first page of leaderboard, mate. You know? And I was like, wow. So you go to bed that night and, of course, you're tossing and turning, thinking about you know, visions of glory and grandeur. And then the final round emerges, and um, you know, I tell you after that, the the uh, I think it was the first hole. I think I might have had a quad bogey. I just thought, oh, it's all over. And again, my boy takes me aside and like, you know, gives me a bit of a, I guess a, a virtual slap around the ears. You know, get your shit together, Dad. It's not as bad as you think. Everyone's having a bad hole. You just have to have yours on the first hole and we've got we've got 17 holes of golf to play and let's just make make the best of what we've got going you, you and, went from uh, that event you, you you then played um for the rest I of the year play, i then discovered you know but by then by the time we left richmond virginia i was hooked you know the competitive juices were flowing i realized that that stable golf could be played at an incredibly high standard, and I had, I had a long way to go. So, um, so I, we came back to Texas, you know, uh, based on that epiphany I had about the, the the length of my equipment. Surprise, surprise! I swing by a local retailer on the way home from the airport, and I buy myself a regular length driver. And so thereafter, you know, started to swap out clubs in my bag, moving to from short length clubs to regular length. And whilst I was in Richmond, I had the, again, good fortune, luck of meeting someone from Swagger, which was the Southwest Amputee Golf Association, who were the local, I guess, the regional group that played disabled golf in my part of the United States. So I Google them and I start making some contacts within the Swagger organization uh, saying that I'm not an amputee, but I play one harm. And would I be eligible to join your organization and play in your tournaments? So they welcomed me. Sorry, I've got to go back to the US Open. I met you there. You did. That's where we first and then, met. Yeah, and then you, yeah, you basically... Uh, made me aware of the fact that, that Edgar 
was, I believe, and this is not necessarily putting words in your mouth, but I got the impression that you, know, you were pretty uh, uh, buoyed with positive news of the future for Edgar that the world ranking system was a big deal, and, and I believe it really is, and that disabled golf was on the cusp of you know, going to another level from a, from a public awareness perspective. So that your, those discussions with you prime me for the fact that disabled golf might actually get to the point where it's not mainstream, but where able-bodied people are now looking at disabled golf as you know, not like, oh, those poor buggers, and oh, aren't they so sweet trying their golf with their one arm and their one legs, blah, blah, blah. Where that attitude changed to, shit, oh dear, look at that. Those guys are awesome. They'd kick my ass. So, you know, that was that was a bit of a realisation that disabled golf was, you know, a little bit more than than disabled people out there hacking, hacking around a golf course. My opinion has, has not changed in the last year. Uh, except for perhaps there's some fantastic stories within within disabled golf, that's for sure. I think there's some fantastic players at all levels, not necessarily just the low handicap players. Uh, you've got players that have had you know severe um, injuries and they've got very profound impairments. And so, therefore, their ability to play the game to a low handicap will definitely be very difficult. But they are elite players, even though they might have a handicap of 28 or 30 or, or 40, because what they're overcoming to be able to play at that level is quite spectacular. And I think, I think what we're seeing as well now is that there's a general acceptance within the game. And I do think it will be mainstream. I do think we will have golfers with disability just taken in to the, the mainstream sport like everybody else. And I think that will be a good thing. It's certainly down under in national championships where you're having the professional tournament and a disabled tournament running in parallel. And at the final day, the, 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 the top, the elite players from the disabled tournament are coming over to the professional tournament and getting exposure in that format playing against you know these these professionals and they're they're not embarrassing themselves they're holding their own and I think you know the spectators that I don't know what spectators are thinking but I could I, I can only imagine that they're thinking my god you know if that guy can do that can overcome those sort of odds against being a decent golfer then why the hell can't I? Why, why can't I try? Yeah, I think you're right, 100%. I, I walk very often in those events and I walk in the galleries. Um, nobody has an idea that I'm involved and I just listen to the, I just listen to the guys talking. And when you listen to the guys, they're, they're, number one, they're full of admiration, they're full of respect. They're also, they literally are, they, they, they kind of... Um, uh, they sledge each other and say, well, that guy hits the ball further than you do. You know, they sledge each other. Exactly. They, they, they take right. the mickey out of each other. And they go, this guy here standing on one leg hits the ball further than you. Well, you know, you, what's wrong with you? 
That's and, right, you yeah. Know, so you get, a, you get a fair amount of that which is going on. And I do think that what, what happens is that there's a lot of people out there that have excuses. Um, we all have them. I have them. You have them. We all have excuses. But what we do is we tend to believe those excuses. And when we see players such as the ones that you've mentioned going out and playing, those excuses just fade away. And then people start to realise they are just excuses. So, yeah, I'm not playing golf because I've got a sore knee or I'm not playing at the moment because my back hurts. I mean, this is just, right. this is ridiculous. And so exactly. I think that we're seeing more and more of that. And I think what that will do is it will help people to understand as well. And, and we must not forget that golf is a bit of an ageing game. The average member is probably between 50 and 65 years of age at most golf courses in most countries. And so, therefore, the, the golf industry itself is looking and saying, well, hang on, we've got some of our players that aren't disabled, but they're definitely impaired. And, you know, they've got a dodgy back and they've got a dodgy leg and they've got a dodgy ankle or whatever it is. And how can we make our game so that it's a bit more attractive for these guys to be able to play? And I think they're looking at golf for the disabled in a way that says, well, maybe these guys are leading the way for us and, and we can learn something from them. Indeed, yeah. I so say the golf industry needs to wake up, uh, certainly in this country, because that that average age of the golfer here, I say this, but in, in, in the same breath, I'm sort of second-guessing myself because we live, I, I can be on it, on the, the driving range of, of, and it's not my golf club, they're too proud of their golf club where I live. They're too expensive for me, so I can't afford to join there. But uh, they have the local high school. They have, the local high school has, a, I guess, free use of their facilities. And there are tons of kids that are, you know, got beautiful swings and hitting the ball solid every time. And But it just makes you wonder, where the hell are they on Saturdays and Sundays, maybe because they're playing Monday through Friday and they're getting their fill through the week and don't need to be out there in the weekends. But mm -hmm. the, average, the average age of the golfer in the, in the United States is, is relatively high. Yeah, I think it's that's, that's pretty, that's pretty consistent around the world. Yeah. Tell me, just before we finish, I've got a, a question that I like to ask to everybody. Uh, it's always kind of my close-off question, I guess, which is... On that morning when you rolled out of bed on uh, in March 24th and you roll out of bed and the next thing you find yourself flat on the floor and there's going to be somebody who's going to experience that unfortunately sometime today or tomorrow or the day after and at that stage they're going to be totally confused they're going to be totally what the hell's going on here and their range of emotions is going to be all over the place for the next 24, 48, 72 hours, really having no idea what the hell's going on. What advice, if you, if you happen to be in that room at that moment, and I'm not asking you to help them, I'm just asking you to speak to them and give them some advice. What advice would you give them? That's a tough one. Um, I tell you, I, I, uh, I'm on the board of directors of a, of a national charity here. The, the, the uh, Central Central Texas chapter of the Folds of Mana. Have you heard of them, Tony? No, I haven't, no. They're actually pretty big in golf. Um, they have a pretty tight relationship with the PGA Tour. 
And so what we do is we uh, raise funds for scholarships for the children of US military personnel that have either died in the service of their country or become disabled and incapacitated again in the service of their country. And so we, we, we basically raise money for the scholarships for their children. So it's a, it's a, it's a pretty prestigious charity. And, uh, and so last year we gave out $14 million in scholarships nation, na nationwide. Wow. So we make, we make, we generate some serious money. And so in that, in that, in my capacity as being a board member of a regional franchise or chapter, I was designated as being the liaison for an initiative that we called Project 21. And the reason we called it Project 21 is that 21 veterans were committing suicide every day through a variety of PTSD disorders. And so in my role as a liaison, I had the, you know, again, luck. Well, I don't know if it was luck. It was just good fortune to then meet a therapist, a clinician that dealt with PTSD. And in that meeting, she, you know, she obviously picked up on the fact that I had a disability and she asked me about that. When I told her, she said, she said, you probably have PTSD. She said, that morning when you were lying on that floor thinking, what the hell is going on? That, that, that precise moment is an event that probably qualifies that you had a form of PTSD. And I do recall lying on that floor thinking, and excuse my expression here, like, what the fuck is going on here? You know, this is... This is serious shit. I'm in deep shit here. And uh, so what would I say to someone that was in that same predicament? I think um, I'd probably have to say, first of all, it's, it's, it, it probably is as bad as, as you think it is. But on the, uh, on the positive side, you're awake. You woke up. So already there's a silver lining to this cloud. You're, you're awake and you're, you're somewhat conscious. You may not be uh, able to comprehend what the hell is going on, but you're awake. And that's the first uh, piece of luck that you've, you've got going in your favor. And that regardless of whatever you hear about your diagnosis over the next 24, 48 hours, know that the true outcome is going to be based on your desire to fight the odds. And the reason I say that, I mean, I had, uh, I'm sorry to take so long to answer your question. No, it's perfect. Uh, I had a situation whereby, you know, I'm in Utah snowboarding. I have this event happen to me. My wife's in Texas. So the lads call down to Texas and say, speak to my wife. And they say, hey, we've got a problem up here. Tony's in hospital. We don't know what's going on. And uh, you better get yourself up here so that you can help them out because we all, we all need to fly back to where we, where we come from. So my wife gets up to, to Utah and apparently at some point in time, she came, into, she came into my room and I could tell that she'd been crying. 
you know, and I guess I was naive and a little bit in a brain fog. And um, she wouldn't tell me what, what went down, what made her upset. But apparently someone had, someone had said to her before she came into the room, uh, you know, be, be aware that your know, husband's in a bad way and what you see is probably about as, as good as it's going to get. So she was, you know, given the impression that what she saw when she walked in that room was, was it. That was going to be her husband for the rest of his life. You know, and at that stage, I was a mess. I couldn't even sit up in bed because I'd lost control of the muscles in my abdomen. I just sort of, you know, just slouching. You know, and I obviously had facial droop, all sorts of, you know, visible shit going on that suggested that I was in a bad way. And then this guy, this medical professional, you know, I mean, maybe he thought at the time that he was being helpful, but he really wasn't. I mean, he, he basically provided false information that was inaccurate based on a variety of things. As I say, I don't know why he said what he said, but he gave her the impression that what she, was, what she saw was it. It was going to be it for the rest of my days. And, um, you know, that is the, that's the joint, there's this, the standard response to, um, to stroke or, or traumatic brain injury that, you know, each brain injury, stroke, each uh, whatever it might be, is an individual thing. The extent of the damage is an individual thing based on brain mapping, et cetera, et cetera. But, and the ability to recover is also an individual thing. So, you know, I think it comes down to determination, uh, a willingness to get yourself up off the couch and, and, and struggle to recover. You've got to invest in your own sort of, um, your own outcome. And so for the poor bugger lying on the floor, wondering how this has all gone so pear-shaped, it's, it's, the message is, A, it's not as bad. It is as bad as you think it is. But you woke up, and then secondly, your ability to to function normally in society is now up to you. And if you've got fight in your body, then by all means, man, you need to harness it like you've never done it before. And uh, I guess one one piece of advice I give to other strokies or anyone is in that situation is that you're allowed to have one day where you feel sorry for yourself and that's okay because some days are shitty and you, you feel sorry for yourself and that's a reasonable uh, response. But here's what you can't do. You can't have a second consecutive day where you feel sorry for yourself because once you establish a daily pattern where you're feeling sorry for yourself, you're on that downward spiral to, oh shit, why me? And, you know, life's, not fair and man, we'll moan, piss moan. You know, you take yourself in the wrong direction. You'll have one day where you can say that. The next day, you better snap out of it because, you know, life's too short. And if you take yourself down that path, it's going to make that journey to recovery all much harder. It's already hard, but don't make it any harder on yourself. Oh, that's fantastic advice. Fantastic advice, Tony. Uh, Tony, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. And
is there any question that you that I didn't ask you that you would have liked me to ask? No, not really, Tony. I think um, good luck of trying to put this into some sort of summary because I think one of the things that I do have a cognitive deficit post-stroke is my inability to be concise. I tend to, you know, give my wife says I give too much information, too many details that, you know, for most people are superfluous and they don't want to hear the detail. They just want to cut to the chase. That's a very American thing, of course. And so she says, you, you procrastinate, you, you delve in too much detail and bullshit. We, you, you ex express, your opinions when in fact all people want is the facts not necessarily your opinion so i apologize if i've digressed and taken us down rat holes that were not necessarily pertinent to the interview no this was this was perfect and uh it's only when you actually start to go down some of those rabbit holes that you really start to understand exactly what's going on and uh, no no i've really enjoyed it take care Fine. thanks take it easy, mate. Ciao, ciao. okay bye, right, bye. This was an Edgar Player story, supported by Ping, helping golfers to play their best. For more information about Edgar, please visit edgargolf.com. Stay tuned for the next Tough Love and Second Chances podcast. Ping. Play your best.